The following podcast is banned in the state of Florida for talking about a dangerous leftist book, the Bible. Like the Bible, this podcast contains frank discussions on sensitive topics, including sex, violence, and cursing. Please proceed with caution. The scripture says, Don't put a muzzle on an ox while it treads grain, and workers deserve their pay. This is the word in black and red. And welcome to The Word in Black and Red, where we read the Bible from a leftist and liberationist perspective to elucidate the way people of faith and their comrades can understand the Bible as a source of healing, love, and liberation for all people. I am your host, Michael Belong, the wise old llama, and be joined today by the wonderful Lazarus and Don. Y'all are very familiar with these wonderful human beings, so we're going to go ahead and dive right in. Genesis 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am El Shaddai. Walk with me and be trustworthy. I will make a covenant between us, and I will give you many, many descendants. Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, But me, my covenant is with you. You will be the ancestor of many nations. And because I have made you the ancestor of many nations, your name will no longer be Abram, but Abraham. I will make you very fertile. I will produce nations from you, and kings will come from you. I will set up my covenant with you and your descendants after you in every generation as an enduring covenant. I will be your God and your descendants' God after you. I will give you and your descendants the land in which you are immigrants, the whole land of Canaan, as an enduring possession, and I will be their God. God said to Abram, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants in every generation. This is my covenant that you and your descendants must keep. Circumcise every male. You must circumcise the flesh of your foreskins, and it will be a symbol of the covenant between us. On the eighth day after birth, every male in every generation must be circumcised, including those who are not your own children, those born in your household, and those purchased with silver from foreigners. Be sure you circumcise those born in your household and those purchased with your silver. Your flesh will embody my covenant as an enduring covenant. Any uncircumcised male whose flesh of his foreskin remains uncircumcised will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God said to Abraham, As for your wife Sarai, you will no longer call her Sarai. Her name will now be Sarah. I will bless her and even give you a son from her. I will bless her so that she will become nations, and kings of people will come from her. Abraham fell on his face and laughed. He said to himself, Can a hundred-year-old man become a father? Or Sarah, a ninety-year-old woman, have a child? To God, Abraham said, If only you would accept Ishmael. But God said, No, your wife Sarah will give birth to a son for you, and you will name him Isaac. I will set up my covenant with him and with his descendants after him as an enduring covenant. As for Ishmael, I've heard your request. I will bless him and make him fertile and give him many, many descendants. He will be the ancestor of twelve tribal leaders, and I will make a great nation of him. But I will set up my covenant with Isaac, who will be born to Sarah at this time next year. When God finished speaking to him, God ascended, leaving Abraham alone. Abraham took his son Ishmael, all those born in his household, and all those purchased with his silver, that is, every male in Abraham's household, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that day, just as God had told him to do. 
Abraham was 99 years old when he circumcised the flesh of his foreskin, and his son Ishmael was 13 years old when the flesh of his foreskin was circumcised. That same day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. All the men of his household, those born in his household and those purchased with silver from foreigners, were circumcised with him. This covenant here is the third time that God has come to Abraham to really seal the deal. But if you read this passage alone, it's like it's the only time that God has done this. And it's a little strange because the Lord appeared to Abram, and then it says God ascended, right? This is not just that God appeared in the sky. This is not some watery tart distributing swords. This is God present there with Abraham and having this conversation in a deeply intimate manner that God had been present before with Adam and Eve in the garden, and seemingly not since. Well, I got to admit, my my first thought at the very end of the passage was just that it almost looks to me like you'd expect out of like a comedy show. Like, I just have this mental image of Abraham standing in the midst of his household and all of his people and watching as the light of God ascends into heaven. There's a heavenly chorus. Then he kind of looks down, looks around and says, all right, give me a dicks and then smash cut (laughs) credits. And that's the end. (laughs) All right, drop (laughs) him. It's so strange. God's special interest seems to be dicks. Like, <laughs> why? Like, you could, like, especially, like, if if we just take the text as it is, right? God, who usually doesn't, like, it's, it's a big deal when, like, you know, Hashem, like, comes and wanders among the people or whatever. And so, like, in one of these big deal moments, you could choose anything <laughs> to talk to people about, right? Like, you are making all of this special effort to give laws about dicks? Like, what? <laughs> What are we doing, right? I'm super, I'm I'm like, I'm fascinated. Like, I kind of like this divine as a neural spicy kind of thing, because in that way, like, the divine is more relatable, right? But my special interest isn't penises, you know? So, like, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm a lesbian, so my interaction with that is is sort of limited anyway. But, like, it's a fascinating choice when you could choose anything, Right. One of the things I find interesting in the the historical notes that I've got in front of me that I always have in front of me that I'm always schlepping for because this stuff is freaking awesome. It's talking about this almost like it's so, somewhat of an arbitrary choice as to this is what the covenant's going to be based on because this is a common practice already in the region and Abraham being a, a Mesopotamian immigrant would be would have been adopting it at this point anyway as someone who's immigrated into the region. In mm-hmm. a way, it's also suggested this is kind of just like, oh yeah, this is why we're doing it because God. Like it, it's kind of like a post facto historical note to provide divine justification for a cultural shift in practice that had already happened anyway. Absolutely. And like we can comment on the fact that this is weird and also not take it to the extent of like the extent of saying that this is evil or something. There are incredibly anti-Semitic ways to take this text, right? And I don't want anyone to be listening to this podcast and hearing us say that this is a strange practice and go, therefore it should be condemned. Right? No, no. My faith teaches me that bread turns into human flesh, right? That's a weird thing to believe. <laughs> and yet I believe it, right? And 
my variation of the faith is not the same as Laz's variation of the faith, and it's not the same as Don's variation of the faith, but that is my understanding of the faith. And so, like, we can acknowledge that there are different understandings of the faith within our tradition and also laugh because God is talking about penises a lot. Um. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And this is definitely um, uh, one that's got a lot, of, a lot of hidden references to multiple sexual organs in it, actually. In verse 24, when we're talking about the strangeness and, like, the, the choice of this particular subject matter and fascination by the divine, verse 24 is, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. Like, great job, Abraham is our guy who, like, you know, is deeply committed and, you know, is an exemplar for the, you know, faith and tradition he's in. But, like, yes to that, right? Like, he is doing it. He's not asking people to do a thing that he's not willing to do. Cool, great, right? Hero of the faith. And, again, come on, God, like, you are circumcising an adult man without any, like, anesthetic? He's an old man. Like, that's gotta hurt. Like, again, like, if God can choose anything, right? Like, this is sort of a giant ask of the divine, and so, like, can we, I don't know, like, find something that's less harmful to, like, super old people that are and also that are like less harmful to the sexual organs of somebody that's supposed to like produce the nations you know now that's like, actually something worth speaking to uh one of the things that that's noted in the in the the uh, history notes here too is that um the practice as was traditionally done in the region the circumcision is a coming of age thing so it was done kind of mid-puberty or post-puberty throughout the region and so the uh israelite version of this eight days after birth is actually kind of doing what you're suggesting and making this a little bit kinder. Abraham's more like an outlier. Mm -hmm. Well, Abraham and all of the other guys with him, his you know, slaves, his household servants who are looking at him with some really conflicted feelings about their life at that point. Them aside, the, the establishment of the practice is actually, I'm not going to say more humane because chopping dick bits off of babies is still not great, but more so than like lopping bits off of, you know, pubescence or old men or what, what have you. So, yeah, it actually is kind of, in a historical context, doing what you're suggesting. In Genesis 34, Jacob and Simeon and Levi, um, who their sister comes and is violated by the people in the city. And because of this violation, they say, hey, you can marry our sister if you just all get circumcised. And if you all get circumcised, then this will all be okay. We'll be family, all these sort of things. And so they, the men of the city, are all circumcised. And then Simeon and Levi go in and kill them all because they're all sore because they've just had the ends of their dicks cut off, right? And so, like, there is an acknowledgement that this is painful in some way, and yet Abraham is still asked to undergo this strange ritual that is ultimately to fit in with the culture that he lives in, right? Yeah, but I will say, I will say this is actually kind of like a, I'm not going to say a consistent theme, but definitely something we see that pops up from time to time of God kind of, for lack of a better term, making the hard ask, or at least the hard and patently a little bit weird and somewhat questionable ask. Like, we get this with, with Abraham and Isaac, we get this in, in a bunch of different places where it seems like God is asking for a painful or a weird thing in order to involve oneself in the ongoing covenantal relationship. Now, part of that has to do with ancient Middle Eastern covenant codes and the rite of sacrifice that played into that and stuff like that. Like, there are certain cultural normatives that we as modern America and America-adjacent individuals are really not seeing because we're thousands of years removed from it. But also, that is, like, 
to, to piggyback on your point, that is a recurring theme that there is a sacrificial component from the human participants in God's covenantal relationship, which of course leads open the door to the question of what is God's sacrificial component to this covenantal relationship as well. And to speak to that, I think that goes back to what Don would call our Girardian instinct, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, well, and to connect it first off to something that Don had mentioned earlier in First Samuel 18, that Saul sends out David and says, go return with a hundred foreskins from Philistines, right? And so, like, first off, that's denoting that Philistines are an other, that they're foreigners, that they're not from this area, and so they don't practice circumcision, and so you can go and get foreskins from them, right? And that is elevating the otherness, the rivalry between the people of Israel and this other culture, right? And so in this way, in the mimetic rivalry where we can come together only if we have something to oppose, this same sort of sacrifice that seems to demand a blood sacrifice, what Derek would describe as human sacrifice, right, here seems to be making a tiny bit of that. Rather than giving all of myself as a human sacrifice or all of my enemies as human sacrifice, I'm giving this tiny bit of foreskin, which is a part of my life organ, right, that perpetuates life. And so it is wrapped up in the symbolism of procuring further life that is related to this sort of human sacrifice question. Yeah. And that ties in, too, to the, uh, to the issue of the covenant at hand as well. The, the covenant being based around fertility and reproduction and regeneration, and then the, the buy-in to that being, all right, but you're going to cut off part of your organ that's involved with that mm-hmm. as almost a way of demonstrating uh, the power of God and being involved in that covenantal relationship. There's something liberatory in that, right? There has to be, when we think about like the way to be in right relationship with one another and right relationship with the divine, there has to be something liberatory in making a stance to say like, this way of being this relationship to the divine has literally cost, is costly in this, you know, tangible, literally, literal way. And I'm willing to pay that cost in order to, you know, enact the, covenant that I have with the divine or, you know, in our kind of parlance, like act by the impetus of the Holy Spirit and, you know, live out the gospel, right? Yeah. Like, and and so there's something liberatory, like as much as we're talking about this being strange, there has to be liberation in that. I don't know what from like our much more progressive or leftist stance, like what that actually looks like, but it's interesting because it's like sacrifice of part of oneself. But it's not the inherent characteristics of oneself, right? It's you aren't giving up like loving who you love, right? You aren't giving up like your career or you're not giving up, you know, forced into missionary work, you know, or something like there's all these things where like more fundamentalist traditions say, ah, the thing that you have to give up is something that doesn't lead to your liberation, but leads to your repression. And this is totally different. This is like, actually, you are in fact giving something up for the sake of the divine, but it's not a thing that is to your detriment or making you, it's marking you, but it's marking you in this especially holy way, not causing you continued harm, you know? I will say this, as, as someone who's, whose parents fell victim to that American trend back in the 80s of just circumcising everybody, it can be liberating. It does make you feel lighter, at least by several ounces. <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, to, to build on the points that Laz and Don have made here, that you are, are giving up a symbol of your progenity, right? And let's think about this from the ancient Near Eastern context, right? They don't have a concept of the afterlife, at least not one that we have been able to identify very strongly in this far back of a time period, right? Like, by the time of the Davidic kingdom, there's probably a concept of Sheol, this sort of, like, Hades-like afterlife where people go to hang out for the rest of time. It's not clear exactly what it is. It's not entirely clear to me that it's anything other than a social, emotional state of being. You know, like, we talk about it as if it's after death, but I'm not sure if that's actually just a poetic way of talking about it. You know, there's all these sorts of questions. But here, the way that people live on is that you have children, right? Your progenity is how you live into perpetuity. And so giving up this little bit of life-giving organ is a big symbol of trust that despite giving this little bit up, you will still have that life that perpetuates. And I think that that is a far more liberating picture, like Laz was saying, than give this up and never have it again, right? It is, I am giving this up because I trust that God is going to give it back to me. And I think that that's the best way to read the story of Abraham's attempted uh, sacrifice of Isaac. I think that's the best way to read it. In that episode, we're going to talk about a lot of ways to read that otherwise. (laughs) But the best way to read it, the most positive light to read it, is that Abraham is willing to give up Isaac because he trusts God to continue to be faithful and good. Now, I don't think that that requires giving up a human sacrifice. (laughs) But, like, there is this tiny symbolism that is there, right? When we get married... If you are in a monogamous relationship and you choose to be monogamous, you are giving up something else. You're giving up the ability to go out and have relationship, the same kind of intimate relationships with just everybody. Now, we can talk about polyamory, we can talk about ethics, we can talk about all those different things, but let's just take that simple vow, assuming that it's just going to be a monogamous marriage. You're giving something up, but in exchange, you're getting something that is incredibly life-giving, that that should be a life-fulfilling and lifelong promise with someone that you love because you have gained this other thing by giving up something else, right? And I, I think that that is the sort of liberatory framework here. When we take on this covenant as Christians— We're supposed to be committed to loving others, which means that we give up the love of money. It means that we give up the love of our nuclear family. It means that we give up the power and the structures of this world that call to us and cling to us and want our loyalty. We give all those things up in exchange for a love that is much more important, for a liberatory love that doesn't just liberate us, but liberates everyone that we love as well. That's really beautiful. I'm looking at the Queer Bible Commentary. Mm. Um, Shout out to the Queer Bible Commentary, though I had heard that it's not in print anymore, so it might be harder to find. But I'm looking at it, and their commentary on Genesis 17 includes a couple of really interesting things. On this direct point, their commentary is that it says, Abraham accepts the imposition of male genital mutilation is what they're calling it, circumcision. Circumcision is a form of symbolic castration. To be in covenant, Abraham and his male descendants are symbolically marked as eunuchs, which is interesting, right? If you were to interpret it that way as the covenant is also about progeny, right? And that term eunuch does a lot of work in <laughs> in the ancient Near East and especially in the New Testament period, right, where eunuch is sort of a catch-all for people who don't fit into a gender binary. The Ethiopian eunuch could rightly be interpreted as a trans woman, although mm. the Bible doesn't use those pronouns for the Ethiopian eunuch. You know, that is 
sort of the role that the Ethiopian eunuch would play in the royal court. This would be a person who was allowed to go into the women's quarters, right? Who was allowed to live among the women, who was allowed to live oftentimes as a woman. And so it is incredibly powerful that that interpretation saying here that the way that you get to be in God's family is that you become a symbolic eunuch, a queer person, and the first Christian who is not Jewish who becomes a Christian is what? The eunuch, right? This Mm -hmm. gender outsider who is called in by God's love. So, speaking of weird ways of describing yourself in the text, let's talk about El Shaddai. All right. Do you mind if I tell a little bit of a story? Please. Really, this is one of the stories that, as a result of my seminary education, has made me perpetually and continually laugh out loud. Back when I was an undergrad, um, one of the TV shows that was making the making the rounds was an old British sex comedy called Coupling, one of the early works of a guy by the name of Stephen Moffat, who if you're a Doctor Who fan, you all know about. Yep. And freaking hilarious show, honestly. And there was one episode in that show where you've got one of the loopy kind of crazy sex character guys who's trying to hit on some girl who only speaks Hebrew and he only speaks English. And there's a back and forth and there's language shenanigans. And you realize that what he thinks her name is actually is the word for breasts. And everybody has a good laugh and you move on. Flash forward to me going to seminary and I learned different words. I learned that Hebrew has both singular and plural, but also has a dual form that ends in yim or im, depending on context. And then I flash back, and it's years later, and I come back to watch this episode again, and I see crazy sex guy trying to introduce himself in English, and then the confusion, the moment of confusion and misstep happens, and the woman thinks that he's asking about something else, and she introduces herself by accident as breasts, and she looks him dead in the eyes and says, Shadaim. (laughs) Um, which is literally the dual form of Shaddai, which is mountain. And it was one of those moments where I come back to it as someone who now speaks a bit of Hebrew, and I'm like, that is freaking hilarious that not only uh, is that El Shaddai no Shaddai, but also that it's specifically in the dual form. (laughs) So every time I read El Shaddai, I, I, I read this as I am tits. <laughs> what it well, sounds like to me. So the queer Bible commentary here suggests like they're on the same page as you, Don, and they said that they like to interpret El Shaddai as literally meaning God the many breasted. Yes, yes, I love that. And that then, is therefore fantastic. that makes like this is God in a more androgynous form. Right. And it's worth noting the fact that five out of the six times that God is called El Shaddai in Genesis, it is specifically in reference to times when the patriarchs are being blessed with fertility. And so, like, El Shaddai, Shad literally means breast, Shaddai means breasts. And so, David Biel, he wrote in the History of Religion, he writes this article called The God with Breasts, El Shaddai in the Bible, to exactly go over this discussion. And the fact that El Shaddai is this name that it's probably a Mesopotamian god, reference to a Mesopotamian god that is the god of the mountains. The mountains, which are, again, what we learned from last time, a yonic image of breasts. I have to ask, am I the only person here now who has a mental image of the, like, many-eyed, many-winged seraphim, except just oops all titties for some reason? (laughs) I feel like there's a real opportunity for some fan art there. (laughs) So the thing, like, a, a bunch of us have come from fundamentalist traditions 
And like, I'm looking at the words to the Amy Grant song, El Shaddai. <laughs> El Shaddai. And I, I really want, like, it's so much queer if we like think <laughs> about it in terms of boobs. But the, but the theology remains incredibly problematic. But right. I, can't, I can't fully liberate the Amy Grant song there. It's just a great example of accidentally gay literature right there. <laughs> booby God, booby God, booby <laughs> God above all others. Oh, God, that just gets worse. <laughs> okay, but like, but, but what fascinating theology would it be if we talked about like, God saves the drought because of their breast milk, right? Oh, like, oh, God, like the mana drips out of God's like fertile breasts, right? Like, well, and that's I mean, that's part of the discussion of the land of milk and honey, right? Is actually that there is this very feminine picture of God as the one who is fertile enough to bring about all of these things, the one who will provide babies' food, right? Like milk and honey, who is that for? That's primarily for babies, right? You mix milk with the honey to to children who aren't able to breastfeed, and suddenly you've saved their lives, right? That's that's right. basically what old-fashioned formula was. It's just it was just milk with some sugar in it, basically. And so like, you know, this is a symbol of the rebirth of this people group. And absolutely, that God is our mother in this image that comes along to breastfeed us in this moment of crisis where we're trying to go to where we're supposed to be. And I think that's important. As, as much as we like to make jokes about it, and trust me, nobody likes a good boob joke better than I do, it is worth noting that there has been a long-standing kind of defeminization of God, particularly in modern eras. Oh, yeah. And that we, we really do, like, as much, again, as much as I love joking about it, we really do need to stand up to the fact that it actually does make more sense in a lot of these cases to look at God through a feminine lens than a masculine lens, uh, which is why I get all bent out of shape when people refer to God as he. Yeah, we want to talk about like taking the text seriously because that's what we get accused of, right? Is that you all you all don't know the Bible well. <laughs> and we're literally like, no, no, we know the Bible super well. Let me tell you about the organs of God. Right? Exactly. Like, exactly. And, like, let me talk about like why God is canonically trans in like mm -hmm. every possible direction. Right. Now let's make the scientific argument that Jesus was trans. Like it's all it's all there. And as a yeah. side note to anyone who says you don't know the Bible, how many years of seminary education do we have between the group of us <laughs> on this podcast? We have at least a decade. Way, like, way <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> at least a decade, probably more. Um, yeah, dear evangelical listener, you want to complain about us not knowing the Bible? Call me back when you've graduated Princeton. <laughs> <laughs> So I think it's really important to hear in verse 13, talk about your flesh will embody my covenant as an enduring covenant, right? And this is the language that gets adopted into Christian language, right? In my tradition, when we are done receiving the Eucharist, we thank God for giving us his body and blood so that we can become his body and blood, right? Like we are the embodied existence of the divine here in the world, and that is our purpose, right? Like, that is why the church exists, so that we can go out and do the love that God needs done in the world, right? And here, God is saying to Abraham, you are the means through which salvation will happen for all people. From you, leaders will be born who will help lead the world. And from a Christian perspective, we read this and saying, who is that king? 
Well, there is no king but Christ, right? And that is what we look forward to at the end of the story. But this this term, your flesh will embody my covenant as an enduring covenant, we understand that differently, but it's worth understanding the way that the people of God, who were the people of God before we got into the covenant, embodied that relationship. It's also worth saying that the covenant that God has with the people of Israel doesn't end, right? It's not like when Jesus comes around, suddenly God is like, oop, I'm all done with you, wipe my hands clean, right? Like, God's relationship with Israel continues through this faithfulness, right? Through people who choose to be faithful. And we are only allowed in because of their faithfulness, right? It's still a strange talisman to Mark because, so I'm looking at verse 8. It says, and I will give to you and your offspring the land which you are now an alien and a land of Canaan for a perpetual holding, and I will be their God. So the for perpetual holding, like as you're talking about this, it sounds like E&D or like a magic card, right? Like foreskin of perpetual holding gives you this <laughs> perpetual covenant, you know, to God. Like I just feel like there's like when we have like Old Testament D&D campaign, like it's like this one's a really important one to like move, you know, move the party through this portion of our story. Like it's so interesting that like this particular little piece of the body that will disintegrate unless you like, I don't know, whatever, however they preserve them on necklaces or I don't know, whatever, right? When you when you give somebody a pile of them. But basically that a thing that, it, you know, will decay because it's flesh like is the thing that is held as perpetual holding. It's just so interesting, right? Because it's this like dichotomy of like, you know, God who comes to us and talks to us about this, you know, in-person IRL, according to this story, right? When normally God is somewhere else, right? Like in, in these circumstances, like God is hanging out directly talking to us, you know, making these big promises with something that in itself will decay, but God's promises do not. Like, it's just, it's super interesting, but it yeah. also, yeah, it really sounds like D&D or magic cards. <laughs> just to, to back you up on that, the, the Hebrew in that text that I was looking up is Bechuzat Olam, which is almost exactly what you said, like a an eternal possession or an eternal holding, like in, in the sense of like a financial holding. So yeah, the D&D read is reasonably solid. <laughs> I, I will I will put my, my stamp of approval on it to say that it's a foreskin bag of eternal holding for Lance. Great. <laughs> we laugh at that. And we should also see that the text itself seems to be laughing in these scenarios. Like, Isaac, right? What does Isaac mean? Isaac means laughter, right? That Abraham falls in his face and laughs at God and points out the fact that what God is asking is absolutely ridiculous. Like, I am an asshole who gets onto a podcast and talks about God's boobs, right? Why in the world is God calling me to be a priest, right? That's hilarious. I should be laughing at God for doing that, right? And, and it's also, like, it's also worth noting that the the word for laughing here, Yitzhak, is the same root as Isaac, like God yep. takes the almost rueful laughter of Abraham and turns that into the covenant itself. Absolutely, absolutely. And that brings us to this really profound point about our religion, right? That God takes this 100-year-old and 90-year-old and uses them to bring about life, right? And people who are so close to death and uses them to bring about life. And what is the end result of this religion? You know, that, that joke is repeated 
in the life and death of Jesus Christ. In lots of traditional churches, Easter Monday is this day of just making jokes, right? And oftentimes you'll have sermons that are just jokes, right? Instead of these really serious things, like, because it's pointing out the fact that God died and then laughed at death, right? <laughs> that, that Abraham was so close to death and yet God brought about life in this circumstance. We, as leftists today, we look at the world, and doomerism is well-founded, right? Like, <laughs> there's lots of reasons to think the world is doomed with climate change and with capitalism and all of these systems of oppression that just keep getting us down over and over and over again, and it looks like the fascists are on the rise, and they seem to be winning all over the place, and yet, we serve a God who, in those exact circumstances, wakes up and laughs and brings about new life because of what we, the faithful few, who sometimes laugh with God, sometimes laugh at God, choose to do. I am deeply grateful to serve and be a, you know, image bearer of a divine who, you know, is so embodied. Their names and their being are contained like dicks, and uh, breasts and everything else, right? Like that we talk about a divine who has numbered the hairs on our heads, you know, a divine that has a womb, like a divine that who, you know, as in Christian tradition, like walks among us with hands and feet, you know, that bleed. And I think that serving a divine this way allows us to therefore like think about our own bodies, right? Like we sacrifice something with our bodies in order to like bring about the good work of the kingdom. And so it, I think like my liberationist and like leftist perspective is therefore like, you know, when we talk about being the hands and feet of God, of Christ, that's like in some sense literal. And so in some sense, like go put your feet into action and march in the streets. If that's a mm. thing that you can do, right. Yeah. Go and write Go and use your voice. Go and like live a liberated life in and amongst, you know, your community. Go and love hard like the outcast, like in an embodied way, whatever that looks like in your context, in your capacity, right? Go and do that because like having a body sanctified and dedicated to God like this is a form of liberation and doing the gospel. But we are called not to just like be academics, you know, at a, at a keyboard, but to like talk about a God who comes announcing themselves into the world like tits forward. <laughs> you know, Laz, that just reminds me of a point that I want to make in this text that is so important, is that Genesis 17 acts as if it is the first time that God is having this relationship with Abram. Genesis 17 acts like the previous two covenants haven't been had, like all of this relationship development hasn't happened, all of these other things. It stands as if it's its own. Like, God has already promised to Hagar that Ishmael is going to be a great leader and is going to be the ancestor of many people. And there's this disconnect where suddenly God is talking to Abraham. And I want to take that story and say, let's pretend like this story is completely in isolation. Abraham is interceding on Ishmael's behalf, right? That this is the first time, or one of the first times, that a character in the scriptures is going to intervene on behalf of another person, and God is going to listen. And so here, Abraham is standing up for Ishmael and says, God, why won't you just accept Ishmael? 
And God hears what Abraham is saying and says, okay, this wasn't my plan. This wasn't plan number one. But because you've asked for it, I'm going to honor our relationship and do it. And in this way, Abraham keeps Ishmael within God's people, right? In the Muslim tradition, Ishmael becomes the ancestor of the Arabic people through whom God has a relationship through Islam. And so, like, this is Abraham's way of making sure that that relationship continues in this special and sacred way. I think that what's so beautiful about this story is that we still have an opportunity to interact with God. I think that if you accept a God that is the classical God that only does all the things which are the maximum possible good and all of these sorts of things, that first off, you're missing a lot of the God of <laughs> the God of the Bible. But more importantly, it makes our prayer useless, right? It, it makes intercessory prayer useless. And I just don't think I believe that. I think that the Bible shows us time and time again that if we pray for something, that God will sometimes change their mind to include the people that we're doing that for. And I know that God has changed the mind of thousands of people who have come around on queer issues because people prayed for it. Not just praying for it, but acted on it, right? Not just sat there and listened, right? But actually went out and did something, like Laz is saying, right? That they intercede on behalf of this person to God, and then they intercede on behalf of that person to the world. And both of those things are necessary to include that person in God's plan forever. Because again, we get to be God's hands and feet in the world. And that's a beautiful and powerful and important responsibility. Thank you all so much for being a part of this conversation. I so appreciate each and every one of you. And you, dear listener, you are just a wonderful part of these conversations. I hope that what we have said tonight was funny and challenging and all of those wonderful things. <laughs> and hopefully, if you're my bishop uh, listening to this, uh, just just pretend you didn't hear it, right? Like, we're we're on the same page here, right? We're, we're fine. Cool. Um, <laughs> now, past Micah, <laughs> tell the people what they're looking for. <laughs> Thank you, future Micah, and of course you, our wonderful listener. Together we have made a wonderful and growing community on Discord that I look forward to being a part of every day. Your generous support on Patreon has already greatly increased the quality of our podcast, including this very outro. As an extra little thank you, you can get episodes early along with a bunch of other cool perks. Please follow the link in the show notes to join our Discord, Patreon, and all of the other things mentioned throughout this episode. If you would like to reach me directly, you can reach me through the Discord or by email at the word in black and red at gmail.com. Now, future Micah, say the profound shit. Thank you, past Micah. Now go, dear friends, and know that your flesh embodies God's covenant with the world. Let us go forth and be God's love. Shalom. Booby God, booby God, booby God above all others. <laughs> Do you love-